conceived on a cruise ship, sir. No, she wasn't. She wasn't? No, Why? she she was conceived two weeks after they got married, she which wasn't. is when they Where? Because I remember talking to him, but it's like I'm still telling people that she was born. On I a counted down. I know the I figured it out. Matu Ferata Nectar. Okay. to another episode of Don't Touch That, It's Haunted, a podcast where we talk about all manner of spooky, macabre, and taboo subjects. I'm Grace, and with me again is Adam. Hello. How are you doing? I am exhausted. I worked all day. I put up, I put up things. I lifted. You, you worked all day as opposed to what the rest of us did? I lifted things. Not everybody <laughs> lifts things. How hey, many things did you lift today? I mentally lifted, Okay. I had a tough day. Um, I'm really glad that we're able to record this week because I was really worried that we weren't going to be able to. Yeah. Yeah, because I was like, I was thinking in my head, I was like, okay, if I've got the vid, I guess I could put something over the microphone to like sanitize it. Um, I got exposed to COVID this last weekend um, and I'm I'm quite upset about it uh, because it wasn't even my fault, but um, (laughs) but I'm good. I'm fine. I got the I got the nose test. Um, it's awful, so just uh, stay home and don't get exposed, and you won't have to go through it. So, but we're all good here. Um, yeah. So, all right. It's late. You're tired. I see it on your face. I'm tired. It worked. Let's get into it. Let's learn about some creepy things. All right. So uh, today we are going to talk about concert disasters oh my it's God. it's something i've been really interested in for a very long time um because i remember when uh i write sins not tragedies was a big song um my mom heard the name panic at the disco and she was like oh i bet they they got that from the headline and i was like what headline and she's like there was this disco and there was like a fire or something and people ran to get out and it was a pole door But they didn't know that. And, you know, when you're in crisis, you're not thinking clearly. And so they found all these people just piled up against the door trying to get out and dead. And uh, after that, I was like, that's really interesting. So I I love a good, I mean, don't love, you know, obviously, but um, a good like uh, group disaster, I guess, like group panic leads to disaster. It's awful. And I wish it didn't happen. But I love hearing about it. Well, there we go. Mm-hmm. I'm a horrible human being. Let's get to it. All right. So number one, uh, this one is from uh, 2011. And I didn't hear about this. And I'm surprised I didn't hear about this at the oh, time. How old was I? I was uh, 21. This, so this was actually about five days before my first day of college. All right. So this is the Indiana State Fair stage collapse. I got all of my information off of Wikipedia, as I often do. Give some money to Wikipedia. They need your help. 
Uh, all right, so the Indiana State Fair stage collapse was an incident during an August 13th, 2011 outdoor concert. It's Andrew's birthday. It is. It is. Um, it is also the wedding day of uh, Edward and Bella Cullen. So. All right. <laughs> um, where was I? Okay, so it was a concert by Sugarland at the Indiana State Fair in which a wind gust from an approaching severe thunderstorm hit the stage's temporary roof structure, causing it to collapse. The structure landed among a crowd of spectators, killing seven people oh, and, in, yeah, and injuring 58. And you can see this on the YouTube. Just I think I actually heard about this because yeah. that was back when Sugarland was a big thing, which might explain why they're not a thing anymore. They're still a thing. Are they? I don't know. They are. They they had that song with the Taylor Swift like two years ago, but I mean they're still a thing. They're still around. That's a that's the Taylor Swift song. Like that's not. It's that. a Sugarland song that Taylor Swift wrote, but it's a Sugarland song. That's a that's a Taylor Swift song. If she if she wrote it, yeah, no, it, it's a Swifty song. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that the best days of your life by Kelly Pickler. Is a Taylor Swift song because she wrote it? Sure. And that, that song by Little Big Town? God, what is that? I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about uh, how these people died. So, um, the members of Sugarland were in a tour bus preparing to come on stage when the collapse occurred at 8.46 p.m. Opening act Sarah Bareilles, who I also love dearly, 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 uh, had completed her performance prior to the incident. Throughout the day and evening of the concert, the National Weather Service issued notices and warnings predicting uh, strong thunderstorms. Message messages about the forecasts were relayed to various state fair personnel via an automated text messaging system. We got a timeline here. I love a good timeline. Love a good timeline. At 8 p.m., Cindy, I think it's Hoy, it's H-O-Y-E, um, executive director of the Indiana State Fair Commission held a meeting to discuss what effect the weather forecast would have on the 8.45 p.m. start time, <coughs> bless you, for, this, for the Sugarland show. Uh, members of the meeting were told that the storm was forecast to arrive at 9.15 p.m., 30 minutes after the concert began. Hoy wanted to delay the show until the weather had passed. An official took this message to Sugarland's managers who said they preferred to go on with the show as scheduled and only stop if weather conditions worsen. The managers only knew about the rain, not the lightning, wind, and hail that were expected. Oh my God. Which is, you know, somebody fucked up there. Uh, they decided to start the show just five minutes late at 8.50 to allow the band time to warm up. When the band's decision got back to director Hoy, she accepted, assuming that the band had final say, which apparently was not true. I mean, you're the director of the fair. I think you get final say. Uh, since the storm was to arrive around 9.15 p.m., there would still be time for them to perform some of the show. At around 8.30, uh, director Hoy encountered state police captain Brad Weaver. Brad Weaver. Brad Weaver. You could just see he's got he's probably like a 
not like a just kind of like a largely built no, man. No, no. He used to be the high school quarterback, but mm. then he settled into just being the state police captain. So he's right. kind of portly now. Like he's yeah. got a gut, but he's still just a little one. Yeah, but he, you know he can still do the, do the job. Right. He's got one of those real cut jaws. But really, it's just like he delegates more than anything. Right. He's like a pretty boy. He tips his hat at ladies. Yeah. He definitely peaked in high school. Yeah. He knows how to shotgun a beer real good. And he'll tell you a great story about the time he caught two DUIs. <laughs> Your picture. <laughs> I see you, it. You I see, see this Weaver. man. <laughs> um, Weaver was concerned that the approaching weather would pose a threat to public safety and recommended that Hoy cancel the show. He also recommended they put together an evacuation plan for the crowd. Because remember, oh, Sarah, this, this was this was Brad's moment. He was like, ready to he go. Saw this and he was like, all right. He no. was like, I'm going to shine today. <laughs> But uh, remember, there was there was a crowd out already, so they were like, "We gotta get these people out." Um, I don't think it says how many people were here, but I'm assuming it was it was a lot. Um, Hoy directed her staff to make preparations for an evacuation. At 8:39 p.m., the National Weather Service issued a severe thunderstorm warning. <laughs> Did you look him up? Did you look him up? Did we get it right? <laughs> okay. Uh, he's a detective now, according to LinkedIn. Oh, good for him. Let's see if I can get a picture of him. Which, that one? Okay. So it's almost exactly like we described. Um, he looks like a very nice man. He he just has that kind of face. He looks like a very nice man. I will uh, I'll I just, post a picture on the Instagram. I just feel like he, like he walked in and he was like, oh, man, we're going to have some weather tonight. All right. <laughs> we need to have an evacuation plan. I've seen things like this before. I don't think he has an accent. They're in Indiana. You can have an accent in Indiana. Just like you can have an accent in Nebraska. You know that makes me angry. All right. Back to, <laughs> back to Brad Weaver. Back to this. Okay, where was I? Okay, at 8.39, the National Weather Service issued a severe one, uh, thunderstorm warning indicating that hail with a diameter of one inch and winds up to 60 miles per hour were expected. This warning was not communicated to Executive Director Hoy or to Captain Weaver. Oh, God. That's who, why you fucked up. I know. They didn't tell Weaver. If you tell Weaver, everything would have been fine. I know. So they were still expecting the storm to arrive at 9.15. So they think they've got plenty of time. They don't. At 8.40 p.m., Director Hoy... Uh, dictated a message to an announcer who delivered it to the audience at 8.45. The announcer stated that a storm was approaching, but that the show would go on. You know, like uh, like Freddie Mercury said. And you know right there, Brad Weaver's shaking his head like... He's like, oh, come to, to, all right, I guess I, guess I gotta listen. Uh, so the announcer gave instructions on how to evacuate to the nearby buildings in case conditions got worse, but there was no directive to actually proceed with an with an evacuation. Again, they didn't listen to Weaver. After hearing an, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I, he's the, just standing there shaking his head. <laughs> the way you just said that just instantly made me think of leave it to Beaver, but leave it, to leave it to Weaver, <laughs> and it's just a. It's just a show about how he actually knows what he's doing, but people pretend he doesn't, and he just has to be like, ah, all right. <laughs> all right. 
Okay. Uh, after hearing an announcement that the show was going to continue, Captain Weaver confronted Director Hoyt. All right, Hoyle. all right, Captain Weaver. He's not taking it laying down. Um, he reiterated that the show should be called off. The two agreed and began walking to the stage to make a second announcement. However, oh, at God. 8, so this is at 8.45. At 8.46, a wind gust hit the, sta the stage structure. Just when it hit, the stage collapsed before they were able to announce the evacuation. I know. And it's, again, you can watch this on YouTube. It's terrifying. You just know the second that started toppling, Weaver just goes, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And I told you. I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it, but. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. According to the final incident report released by Thornton Tomasetti, the failure was due to inadequate capacity of the lateral load resisting system, which was comprised of guy lines connected to concrete, Jersey barrier ballast. So if you understand any what about what I just said, because um, I don't, but basically uh, the structure just was not put together correctly. So when right. the when the gust hit, it was just all like, fuck it, we're, we're out of here. So um, that is the, oh, uh, several lawsuits were filed after the tragedy. Okay. As would. Um, in 2014, the largest lawsuit representing multiple plaintiffs and multiple defendants was settled for $50 million in damages. In the aforementioned lawsuit, the state of Indiana settled for paying $11 million, and the other defendants, including Live Nation or Live Nation and Sugarland, settled for paying the balance of the $50 million. So it was they had to pay out uh, $39 million, which it was not Sugarland's fault. It really wasn't. Yeah. yeah, I mean they've got they've got the money, but like they probably made the money that night. Right. Um, However, defendant ESG Security Inc., who lost one of its own in the collapse, denied liability and did not settle. What the hell? I you know. lost your own dude and you're like, nope, not our fault. Nope. Well, I don't know if they're saying it's not their fault. They're just saying that they weren't going to settle it. Well, they denied liability. That's literally saying right. it's not our fault. That's lawyer talk for it. Well, that's just fault. the security, though. I don't know that it was the security's fault. I think it was the people in charge that didn't direct the security. Because how were they supposed to know? Listen to Weaver. Listen to Weaver. Weaver wasn't, wasn't his voice wasn't communicated to people. They didn't know. On September 14, 2015, ESG won a summary judgment and was dismissed from the case. So they were, they were clear. Oh, okay. Um ESG was the only defendant dismiss, dismissed from the case via the summary judgment process. What are you doing? Play with the cat. Well, stop it. It's making a weird noise in the microphone. Okay. Um, this one is a fucking doozy. So strap in. I tried to cut it down as much as I could, but there was just like so much information packed into it in the Wikipedia. Um, so here we go. Uh, I'm going to try to say this correctly. Altamont Speedway Free Festival. Um, so the 
Altamont Speedway Free Festival was a counterculture rock concert held on Saturday, December 6, 1969. That's like two days after your birthday. It is two days after. They say December 4th in here a lot. Ooh. Um, so we're recording this on December 2nd, and my birthday's on the 4th. So uh, please send me presents or um, cute memes on Instagram. Either way. There you go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be 28. I don't know how I feel about it. I said the same thing last year and the year before that. And actually, I can't really remember turning 26. I can't remember like being like, oh. Uh, Although I think that that was the year that we stayed at the Airbnb. There you go. Yeah, it was a good year. It was a good year. Okay, back to this. Um, So it was in Northern California. Approximately 300,000 attended the concert. And some anticipated that it would be a Woodstock West, and Woodstock had been held less than four months earlier. The event is best known for considerable violence, including the stabbing death of Meredith Hunter and three accidental deaths, two caused by a hit-and-run car accident, which is never mentioned in this article, and uh, one by LSD-induced drowning in an irrigation canal. Also never mentioned. <laughs> like, That's, this is... That's a funny death. I'm sorry. I know. It's just, it's so unfortunate. <laughs> like, um, scores were injured. Numerous cars were stolen and then abandoned. And there was. <laughs> this sounds like a party. They're literally just like a valet at that point. <laughs> um, there was also extensive property damage. The concert featured, in order of appearance, Santana, Jefferson Airplane. The Flying Burrito Brothers, and Crosby's, Stills, Nash, and Young, with the Rolling Stones taking the stage as a final act. The Grateful Dead were also scheduled to perform following Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, but declined to play shortly before their scheduled appearance due to the increasing violence at the venue. Stare. Yeah. Uh, staff at the Rolling Stone magazine termed the event, quote, Rock and Roll's all-time worst day, December 6th, a day when everything went perfectly wrong. Oh, my God. I know. Uh, filmmakers Albert and David Mazels shot footage of the event and incorporated it into the 1970 documentary, Gimme Shelter. Okay, so there's like, I can't tell if these are two separate accounts of how this happened or... If it's like two separate things happened and they merged together. So I'm, I'm just going to tell you both of them. According to Jefferson Airplanes, Spencer Dryden, the idea for a kind of Woodstock West began when he and bandmate Jorma Kakanen uh, discussed the staging of a free concert with the Grateful Dead and the Rolling, Sto Rolling Stones in Golden Gate Park. I bet they thought nothing was going to stop them now. I bet they did. I bet they did. As plans were being finalized, uh, finalized, Jefferson Airplane were on the road, and by early December, they were in Florida, believing that the concert plans for Golden Gate Park were proceeding. But by December 4th, I was, how old was I? Negative, what's 92 minus 69? Uh, I don't know. I was negative a lot. Um, my dad was one year old. 
let's put it that way. <laughs> so, um, so I think I was negative 21. Anyway, <laughs> I'm bad at math. Um, uh, by December 4th, the plans had broken down because the city and police departments were unhelpful. In eight conflicts. Well, that's because they didn't have a Brad Weaver. That's true. That's true. This was, uh, it might have been before Brad Weaver's time. How old was Brad Weaver in 2011? <laughs> he might have been just a boy. Um, innate conflict between the hippies of hate Ashbury and the police was manifested in obstructiveness. Hang on, I gotta look at a baby Yoda meme. Uh, baby Yoda is the cutest thing to ever happen to the world. That's true. Oh my god, I love I love that five million dollar puppet so much. Sorry, every time we have a baby Yoda meme, I have to share. I have to share it. Oh, I cry when things happen. I know in my head. I know in my head that this is a puppet. It's a puppet. It's not even like a puppy or anything. It's a puppet. But I cry so furiously i sob i heave it's a whole that adam has to calm me down physically i get so upset it's, yeah. it's an event in our household mm -hmm. all right so all back, right back, back to the show back to the death uh, uh so yeah conflict Sears Point Raceway was suggested, but its owner wanted $100,000 in escrow from the Rolling Stones. And so they were like, no, nope, we're not doing it. At the last moment, Dick Carter offered his Altamont, Altamont Speedway in Alma, Alamedia County. I'm bad at names. Um, he offered his Speedway for the festival. The location was taken in a spirit of desperation. Quote, there was just no way to control it, no supervision or no order, said organizers. Um, they said that the vibes were just bad and just really peculiar, and it didn't have the Woodstock vibe that they were all expecting. Meanwhile, during the... Oh, my thing did it again. Hang on. Meanwhile, during the Rolling Stones 1996 U.S. tour, many felt that their ticket prices were far too high. In answer to this criticism, the Rolling Stones decided to end their tour with a free concert in San Francisco. Um, so this gets really long, so I'm just going to skip the specifics and tell you it moves locations a lot because they're like, okay, we're going to do it here. And then someone's like, well, we want lots of money or we don't want to do that here. And they're like, okay, well, now we'll have it this place. And right. it just keeps happening. Um, and then they end up at the Speedway. Uh, and this, um, they, they said that this is where it was going to be on December 4th. So it was two days before the concert. Oh God. Right. The hasty move resulted in numerous logistical problems, including a lack of facilities such as portable toilets and medical tents. The move also created a problem for the stage design. Instead of being on top of a rise, which characterized by... Hang on, what is that word? Oh, geography. Which characterized by geography at Sears Point, at Altamont, the stage would be at the bottom of a slope. The Rolling Stones stage manager on the 96 tour, Chip Monk, explained that, quote, 
The stage was one meter high, 39 inches for us. At Sears Point, it was on top of a hill, so the audience pressure was back upon them. That confused me. Um, because of the short notice for the change of location, the stage couldn't be changed. So basically, they're at the level of the crowd. Right. So, yeah. Um, so Sorry. right there, issue. Uh, because the stage was so low, and this is this is really the only choice that there could have been for uh, for an answer to this. Because the stage was so low, members of the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club, led by Oakland chapter head Ralph Sonny Barger, were asked to surround the stage and provide security. <laughs> right, right. I don't see any issues with this at I, all. I just want to know who was like, let me call my guy Ralph. He's the <laughs> head of a... Like, I know a guy. Um, also, there's many conflicting. So members of the Hells Angels say, yes, this happened. And then people that were like organizing the event are like, no, this didn't happen. So we don't know for sure. But it is said that the Hells Angels provided their services in exchange for $500 of free beer. Yeah. Which they drank during the show. I'll, I'll take the Hells Angels word for right. it. They have a reputation. Right. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, Grateful Dead manager Rock Scully said that the Angels... <laughs> I'll give you a moment. I'll give you a moment. Oh, okay, go on. <laughs> you good? <laughs> Just the most... Most rock and roll name. For Grateful Dead manager... Like, was that his sure, actual name? I'm pretty sure that that's his name. I mean, it. Everyone else, it has like their nickname and like <laughs> he was, quotations. He was in his 30s. Like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm, I don't know. My name's I'm Rock gonna... Scully. What do I do? Um. Oh, uh. So Rock Scully said that if the angels hadn't been on stage, the whole crowd could have easily passed out and rolled down onto the stage. There was no barrier, oh my God. which is just, maybe you shouldn't just be like, nope, canceled, bye. <laughs> like, um, Altamont Speedway owner Dick Carter hire, had hired hundreds of professional plainclothes security guards. I don't know this word. Um, basically, he hired a bunch of security guards to protect his property, and he didn't really care about the 300,000 people that were going to be on his property. So, just a real a real winner this this uh, Dick Carter. Dick Carter. Dick Carter. Uh, over the course of the concert, so this is an all day concert. Um, over the co course of the concert, the mood of both the crowd and the angels became progressively agitated and violent. The angels had been drinking their free beer all day in front of the stage, and most were very drunk, as you would be after drinking five hundred dollars of free beer. The crowd had also become antagonistic and unpredictable, attacking each other and the angels and the performers. In the early evening, the mood had taken a decidedly ugly turn as numerous fights had erupted between angels and crowd members and within the crowd itself. Uh, Dennis Jukes, lead singer of the local San Francisco rock band, the Ace of Cups, uh, was six months pregnant at the time 
and hit in the head by an empty beer can thrown from the crowd and suffered a fractured fractured skull. Oh, I'm sorry. Her name is Denise. I said Dennis. It's Denise. Yeah, I was going to say, how's Dennis? I'm sorry about that. Um, the Stones later paid all of uh, her ambulance and medical services, which is very nice. Because I don't, they weren't performing. Her band wasn't performing. I think they were just there. Uh, the angels proceeded to arm themselves with sawed-off pool cues and motorcycle chains to drive the crowd further back from the stage, which that's just an image. I've got a sawed-off pool cue, and I'm not afraid to use it. Men, the crowd is getting wild. Drop your beer and get your sawed-off pool cues. Grab your cues. Ralph, probably. It probably was Ralph. I mean, it was his chapter. Yeah. He had the say. He was the uh, the critter of this situation. Or the horny Dave, if you will. Watch Bob's Burgers, everybody. It's a good show. I would have gone with Jack's Teller, but you know what? Let, let her have it. That's the only motorcycle game she knows. Bob's Burgers is our show, babe. That's why I said it. Anyway. <laughs> um, I know things. I've been educated. Okay. Uh, after the crowd toppled one of the angels' motorcycles, the angels became even more aggravated because you don't mess with a man's motorcycle. Not, not, not a hell's angel. So Marty Ballin of Jefferson Airplane jumped off the stage to try to sort out the problem only to be punched in the head and knocked unconscious by an angel during the band's set. When Jefferson Airplane uh, guitarist Paul can turner can can um he sarcastically thanked the angels for knocking their lead singer out angel bill fritz these are some names okay so one of the angels took hold of a microphone and argued with him about it the grateful dead had been scheduled to play between crosby still nash and young and the rolling stones but after they heard about the ballin incident they refused to play and left the venue uh, citing the quickly degenerating security situation, which was the correct call. They should have, well, I was going to say they should have canceled the show, but we'll get into that in a moment. Um, during Crosby's Still, Nash & Young set, Stephen Stills was reported to be repeatedly stabbed in the leg by a, quote, stoned out Hell's Angel with a sharpened bike spoke. Oh, my God. I know. Oh. Uh, when the Stones began their set around sundown, a tightly packed group of between 4,000 and 5,000 people were jammed at the very edge of the stage and many attempted to climb onto it. Uh, Mick Jagger, who had already been punched in the head by a concert goer within seconds of emerging from his helicopter. So this guy just gets off the helicopter and goes to the stage and just gets pummeled. Um, he was visibly intimidated by the unruly situation and urged to everyone, quote, just be cool down in front there. Don't push around. During the third song, Sympathy for the Devil, a fight erupted in the front of the crowd at the foot of the stage, prompting the Stones to pause their set while the angels restored or order. After a lengthy pause and another appeal for calm, the band restarted the song and continued their set with less incident until the start of under my thumb some of the hell's angels got into a scuffle with meredith hunter age 18 
where he attempted to get on the stage with other fans. One Hell's Angel grabbed Hunter's head, punched him, and chased him back into the crowd. Oh, God. No. After a minute's pause, Hunter returned to the stage where Hunter's girlfriend, Patty Bairdenhoft, uh, found him and tearfully begged him to calm down and move further back in the crowd with her. But he was reportedly enraged, irrational, and, quote, so high he could barely walk, unquote. Rock Scully. Rock Scully. <laughs> uh, who could see the audience clearly from atop of a truck backstage, uh, said of Hunter, quote, I saw what he was looking at, that he was crazy, he was on drugs, and he had murderous intent. There was no doubt in my mind that he intended, intended to do terrible harm to Mick or somebody in the Rolling Stones or somebody on that stage, unquote. Following the initial scuffle with the Angels, as he tried to climb on stage, uh, returned to the front of the crowd and drew a long-barreled 22 caliber revolver from inside his jacket. Hell's Angels... Uh, Alan Passero, seeing Hunter draw the revolver, drew a knife from his belt and charged Hunter from the side, parrying Hunter's pistol with his left hand and stabbing him twice with his right hand, killing him. So it's unfortunate, but I mean, he did what he had to do. I mean, yeah, it sucks. I, I it, it sucks, but. Think about being the girlfriend though in that situation. Fuck, I know. But he was going to shoot somebody. Well, yeah, but still, watching, watching I know. your boyfriend. Oh my God, I know. Uh, witnesses also reported Hunter was stomped by several Hell's Angels while he was on the ground. The gun was recovered and turned over to police. Hunter's autopsy confirmed he was high on methamphetamine when he died. Ah, you, meth. You can't do that. Uh, Passero was arrested and tried for murder in the summer of 71, but was acquitted after the jury viewed concert footage showing Hunter brandishing a revolver and concluded that Passero had acted in self-defense. The Rolling Stones were aware of the fight, but not the stabbing. But it soon became apparent they could see something of what had happened because the band stopped playing mid-song and Jagger was heard calling into his microphone, quote, we've really got someone hurt here. Is there a doctor? Unquote. After a few minutes, the band began playing again and eventually completed their set. Jagger said they all agreed that if they abandoned the show at that point, the crowd would have become even more unruly perhaps uh, degenerating into a full-scale riot. So, yeah, that's the uh, that's the Altamont Speedway disaster. Mick Jagger saving what he could with rock and roll. <laughs> Mick Jagger just making it through <laughs> with the rock and roll. So um, this next one, they did a really, really good in-depth uh episode about this on my favorite murder so if you want to know more details uh check that out it's very good because i'm just gonna kind of give you a lowdown um this one's another heavy one they're all they're not gonna get any lighter um coming up here so this is uh the who tour in 1979 riverfront coliseum um so this is in cincinnati i don't know why i said it like that <laughs> this there is in go. cincinnati uh, the concert was a sellout with 18,348 tickets sold. The majority of these, 14,770, were unassigned general admission tickets that were first come, first serve. So basically, 
um, 14,000 of these tickets where, you know, you show up and you just try to be the closest one to the stage. So think about that. 14,000 people potentially running to be towards the stage. So already horrible idea. 14,000. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember if I included this in here, but there was a, there was a lot of reform about doing general admission seating after this uh, because of what I am about to tell you. Uh, so a few hours before the show, a sizable crowd had already gathered outside the front of the arena um, because they were, they were told that they were going to show some like the Who movie um, at like three o'clock, which they did not do. Uh, so there's a crowd of people waiting to see this. Um, around 7,000 people were there by 7 p.m. Entry to the show was through a series of individual doors alongside the front of the arena, as well as a few doors at each side. The crowd focused at each of the the, the crowd focused at each of the doors. I don't know them. Uh, the doors were not opened at the scheduled time, causing the crowd to become increasingly agitated and impatient. During this period, the Who undertook a late sound check. So that's another thing. So. They were told that the doors were going to open at like five, I think. I'll go on to tell you. Um, and they didn't. And then the band was late. So they were like left waiting out for longer and longer. And also this was, I think this was November. So it's cold outside. So you've got people that have been outside since 3 p.m. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, da, 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 da. Some members of the crowd heard the late sound check and mistakenly believed that the concert was already starting. Some people from the back of the crowd began pushing towards the front, but this run, uh, this rush soon dissipated as the crowd realized that no entry doors had been opened and that the concert had in fact not begun yet. People were originally told through a radio station that general admission ticket holders would be admitted at 3 p.m. Okay, so there's that. Um, and therefore a sizable crowd formed by 5 p.m. Although the doors were expected to be opened simultaneously, only a pair of doors at the far right of the main entrance were finally opened. So you've got all these people at the front that got there early and have been waiting, and then all of a sudden there's just one pair of doors way at the end, and so you've got these people up front trying to get over as fast as they can, so there's just like a mad rush. So think about water through a funnel yeah that's what's happening um 5 p.m as concert goers entered the stadium through the two open doors those waiting in front of all the other doors began pushing forward again after a short period of waiting and then knocking on the doors and glass next to the doors the crowd assumed that none of the remaining doors would be opened about 7 15 the real trouble began Conflicting reports suggested that concert goers could hear either a very late soundtrack or the Who's Quadrophenia movie um, in lieu of an opening act. Either way, the crowd assumed that the Who were on earlier than scheduled. At that point, the entire crowd surged and pushed towards the two doors which had been open. This caused many people to get trampled while some suffered from more serious injuries. 11 people were unable to escape the dense crowd pushing towards them and died by asphyxiation. I know, buddy. I know. It's pretty awful. 
we got a cat trying to explode through our through our curtains. But uh, 26 other people reported injuries. So basically, these people were like pushed up against the doors or they were, you know, like right. held down and whatever. And just like that's that's got to be just fucking awful. Um, the concert went on as planned with the band members not told of the tragedy until after their performance. So the band had no fucking idea that any of this had happened. Oh my God. Yeah. Which like, I sort of get it. Um, and it was kind of the same thing that Mick Jagger said that, uh, organizers were just kind of afraid because people were already really pissed off and like angry. They were afraid that if they canceled the show, it was going to be worse. So they were like, we're just going to do it whatever um the following night a lengthy segment on the tragedy aired on cbs evening news with walter cronkite Ooh, walter cronkite Cronkite. um examining violence at rock concerts guitarist pete townsend was interviewed by cbs news correspondent martha teichner um comparing crowd reactions at concerts to football and boxing matches calling them high-energy events. The following show in Buffalo the next night, Roger Daltrey told the crowd, quote, we lost a lot of family last night. This show's for them. So the Who felt responsible for this. Yeah. Even though, again, like Sugarland, it wasn't really their fault. But, you know, like, I mean, how could you not? Um, in Providence, Rhode Island, Mayor Vincent Sinassi canceled a scheduled performance of the Who at the city's civic center the same month. This was despite the fact that Providence venue had assigned seating. 33, I love this, 33 years later, the band returned to Providence and honored the tickets from the 1979 show. Who still had their ticket? I know. Well, you could probably like claim, I don't know. They had better like written records back then. So maybe somebody found something. The families of the victims sued the band concert promoter, electric factory concerts, and the city of Cincinnati. The class action suit filed on behalf of 10 of the families was settled in 1983, awarding each of the families of the deceased approximately $150,000, which today would have been $385,000. The family of Peter Bowes opted out of the class action and settled later for an undisclosed amount. Ooh. Uh, approximately $750,000 or almost $2 million today was to be divided among the 26 injured. The city of Cincinnati also imposed a ban on unassigned seating on December 27, 1979, with minor exceptions for the next 25 years. Ooh. I know. So uh, that's the WHO concert disaster. Oh, ah. It's the what? Before it's the, the what? <laughs> All right, so Love Parade. Um, This is another one that I had never heard of, and it's fairly recent, but it is in Germany, so maybe that's why. Um, On the 24th of July, 2010, a crowd disaster at the 2010 Love Parade Electronic Dance Music Festival in, I'm going to butcher these names, Deisburg, North Rhine-Westphalia, Germany, Um, It caused the death of 21 people from suffocation, and at least 500 more were injured. 
The Love Parade was a free access music festival and parade that originated in 1989 in Berlin. The parade featured stages, but also had floats with music, with music, DJs, and dancers moving throughout the audience. The Love Parade in Duisburg was the first time that the festival had been held in a closed-off area. Between 200,000 and 1.4 million people were reported to be attending the event and 3,200 police were on hand, which I feel like there's a very big difference between 200,000 and 1.4 million. Yeah. You know, so I don't, I don't understand what's going on there. Um, as a consequence of the disaster, the organizer of the festival announced that no further love parades would be held and that the festival was permanently canceled. No more love. No more love, which I think that may have been an over-exaggeration because it sounds like this happened because of the location. Like, not because of the event, because of the location. Because they they had had, like, what, 21 of these? Something like that, that were successful. So, um, criminal charges were brought against 10 employees of the city of Duisburg and of the company that organized the event, but eventually rejected by the court due to the prosecutor's failure to establish evidence for the alleged acts of negligence. You had one job, prosecutor. And, and their casual connections to the deaths. On the 18th of April, 2017, the state Supreme Court, Dusseldorf, stated that it would... It's a funny town. Yeah. Makes me think of uh, Dr. Doofenshmirtz. Doofenshmirtz Incorporated. Disney, please do not sue me. Um, so the Supreme Court stated that it would be reopening the court proceedings for prosecution of 10 people involved in planning the event, accusing them of negligent homicide and mayhem. The first hearing of the trial was held on December 8th, 2017. So back to the festival itself with the slogan, the art of love the event was a prominent part of ruhr 2010 a campaign to celebrate germany's ruhr valley as one of 2010's european capitals of culture so i mean it was like a really innocent celebratory thing um the festival which had previously been a parade through berlin was in 2010 staged on the grounds of a former freight station. The confined area had a maximum capacity of 250,000. Again, we may have had as many as 1.4 million people, so not, uh, not good. Yep. Um, the average turnout of the previous years would have suggested a number close to 1 million attendees for the event. So, like, they knew what they were getting themselves into. They knew. They knew. Um, admittance to the festival grounds was supposed to begin at 11, but was deferred until as late as 12. At, at the convergence, oh, at the convergence of a 240 meter long tunnel extending from the east and a series of underpasses from the west was a ramp that served as the only entrance and exit point of the festival area. So people had to like go through this tunnel to go anywhere, which again, sounds like a terrible fucking idea. Um, that is expecting one smaller ramp between the westerly underpasses. 
In an effort to relieve overcrowding, police at the entrance began instructing new arrivals by loudspeaker to turn back. Despite being told that the tunnel's only exit was barred off, one which would have otherwise led to the parade area encircling the festival, people continued pushing on into the confined space of the tunnels from the rear. The fatalities occurred when the ramp between tunnel underpasses and festival area overcrowded until there was a crush. Um, so I'm assuming that that means that people were like crushed against stuff. Like, you know, pushed. No, they, they didn't just get an orange soda. They didn't just get an orange soda. A giant orange soda fell from the sky. Oh my God. <laughs> um, there was some debate as to how the deaths occurred. Some reports suggested that they were caused by people falling off of a staircase as they tried to escape the tunnel. However, autopsies showed that all of the fatalities were due to crushed rib cages, which again sounds fucking awful. Um, a 2012 scientific analysis of the cause of the disaster dismissed the earlier description of the inf incident as stampede or crowd panic and instead found evidence of a phenomenon called crowd turbulence. Um, Lapavent Gumbha, the organizer of the Love Parade, released a film depicting an explanation of the events. The film is based on CCTV recording, explanatory animations, documents, press reports, and eyewitness accounts released by the organizer. Huh. A total of 21 people died between the ages of 18 and 38. 15 people died on site and six in the hospital. The, the atmosphere was, oh, uh, so these are some eyewitness accounts now. So this is from a police officer that was there. The atmosphere was explosive. Many people in the crowd seemed to be intoxicated. When people started falling off the stairs and pulling others with them, it just became chaotic. They just couldn't be stopped. It was a living hell. Um, then this one is from a eyewitness who was trapped in the tunnel when this was happening. I will never forget the sight. There were all these twisted up bodies and those who had been crushed. They were lying in the tunnel. They were lying at the tunnel exit. Their faces had all turned blue. So oh <laughs> really, really horrific shit. Um, police chose not to close down the event, fearing that doing so would spark another panic. So this seems to be a common, a common thing that happens. Um, nearby motorway A59, which was closed during the whole Love Parade, functioned as an access route for emergency services. During a press conference on July 25th, organizer Rainer Schaller stated that these would that there would never again be another love parade out of respect for those who lost their lives. Uh, quote, the love parade has always been a joyful and peaceful party, but in future would always be overshadowed by yesterday's events, unquote. Uh, none of the involved organizers or officials took, uh, took the blame for the disaster by July 29th. Instead, the involved parties issued several statements accusing each other Ah. In a circular manner. So it's like that scene in the office when they all have their guns at each other. Yeah. I got crossbows. I'm going to put down all weapons. <laughs> That's one of my favorite episodes. All right. Um, so this one is uh, the most terrifying one to me. 
Um, I told you about this one a little bit. Um, so this is, so I, I don't know that I've ever heard of this band, Great White. No. No. So um, it's the Station Nightclub Fire. And this happened in 2003. So I think I had kind of heard of this, but I don't think I knew specifically what it was. I think it was just one of those things that, you know. Happened. That happened. Um, that I had heard on some show or whatever and like just kind of knew about. Um, so the Station Nightclub fire occurred on February 20th, 2003 in West Warwick, Rhode Island, killing 100 people, including great white guitarist Ty Longley, and injured 230. Oh, God. Yeah. The fire was caused by pyrotechnics set off by the tour manager of the evening's headlining band, Great White, which ignited flammable acoustic foam in the walls and ceilings surrounded the stage. The blaze reached flashover within one minute, causing all combustible materials to burn. Intense black smoke engulfed the club in five and a half minutes. Video footage of the fire shows its ignition, rapid growth, the billowing smoke that quickly made escape impossible, and the blocked egress that further hindered evacuation. The toxic smoke, heat, and the resulted human rush towards the main exit killed 100. 230 were injured and another 132 escaped uninjured. Many of the survivors developed post-traumatic stress disorder after the event, which like, how could you not? Right. Like, oh my God. Um, this fire was the fourth deadliest at a nightclub in U.S. history and the second deadliest in New England. The fire started just seconds into the band's opening song. Their 1991 Billboard mainstream rock hit, Desert Moon. When pyrotechnics set off by tour manager Daniel Beichel, um, fuck you, Daniel. I don't. I think it was just an. I think it was an accident. Well, he's a tour manager, right? Setting off pyrotechnics, right? Get right. get a, a freaking guy. That's true. Maybe he was the guy. Well, he's maybe, not a very good. Maybe this guy. was his specialty, and it was just a. It's just the I don't know. It's, it's the worst thing. It's worse than calling your buddy Ralph, who runs around with motorcycles. Right. Damn it, Ralph! You had one job. Um. Okay, so the uh, the pyrotechnics ignited flammable acoustic foam on both sides and the top center of the drummer's alcove at the back of the stage. The pyrotechnics were gerbs which are cylindrical devices that produce a controlled spray of sparks. Uh, again, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, but it's just the way that I'm going to say it. Uh, Beichel used four gerbs set to spray sparks 15 feet for 15 seconds. Two gerbs were at 45 degree angles with the middle two pointing straight up. The flanking gerbs became the principal cause of the fire. So they were probably just set too close, is what I would guess. I'm just, the way I'm seeing it is, is uh, Bitchell is like, all right, we're going to have the greatest thing ever. I'm going to get four gerbs. And the one guy was like, you just need two. I want four gerbs. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. We, we, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, the acoustic foam was installed in two layers with highly flammable Earthane foam above polythane foam, the latter being difficult to ignite, but releasing much more heat once ignited by the less dense 
polyurethane. Uh, burning polythane foam instantly develops opaque, dark smoke along with deadly carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. Inhaling the smoke only two or three times would cause rapid loss of consciousness and eventually death by internal suffocation. So oh nothing good at all. Um, the flames were initially thought to be part of the act. The song's music video clearly showed flames blazing around the musicians. So people thought that this was like a thing, like an effect, right. um, which makes sense. Uh, only as the fire reached the ceiling and smoke began to bank down did people realize it was uncontrolled. 20 seconds after the pyrotechnics ended, please hold on. Uh, the band stopped playing and lead vocalist Jack Russell calmly remarked into the microphone, quote, wow, that's not good, end quote. Um, in less than a minute, the entire stage was engulfed in flames with most of the band's members and entourage fleeing for the west exit by the stage. By this time, the nightclub's fire alarm had activated, and although there were four possible exits, most people headed for the front door through which they had entered, which this is why, and I've been taught this from a very, very young age. When you enter any space you've never been before, you look for the exits and you visualize yourself getting out. Mm -hmm. um, and it used to be a fire thing, but uh, in recent years has become a, in case there is an active shooter. Um, but like, seriously, you're supposed to note where they all are and then just visualize yourself like i used to do this at the movie theater all the time like when i was little i would be and i still do it um i get out of my seat i walk down these stairs i go to this side of the railing because people aren't going to go that way and then you go down and apparently it helps there you go i've never been in that situation but i'm assuming that one day when i am i'll be prepared knock on that wood um da -da 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 -da. The ensuing stampede led to a crush in the narrow hallway leading to that exit, quickly blocking the exit completely and resulting in numerous deaths and injuries among the patrons and staff. Excuse me. A total of 462 people were in attendance, even though the club's official license capacity was 404. Hmm. Error. Huh. Seems to be another common thing that's happening here. Um, 100 lost their lives, and about half of the survivors were injured, either from burns, smoke inhalation, thermal trauma, or trampling. Among those who died in the fire were Great White's lead guitarist, Ty Longley, and the show's EMC, WYJY, or WHJY, DJ Mike, the Dr. Gonslave. Damn. I know. DJ Mike. This is worse than Congressman Ryan. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> Let's not compare the dead, sir. Um, there is reason to believe that Longley and Gonslave tried to salvage equipment during the early stage of the fire oh. and lost valuable time to escape before dense toxic smoke made breathing nearly impossible at zero visibility. Longley is believed to have initially made it out of the building and then re-entered in an attempt to rescue his guitar. Which, what's the very first thing that they tell you in fire safety? If your house is on fire, don't grab things, just get out. Things can be replaced. Not his guitar. If I, I tell you, though, I'd come back in here for one of the cats. Which one? All of them. <laughs> I would come. 
I, you have no idea how often I think about this, that like, if there's a fire, I have to find them all and how hard potentially that could be. I, I'd die in here for one of the cats. Yeah. I would. Like that I one? Would. That one. And they just saw her somewhere, but yeah. So, um, now for a guitar though, I, I wouldn't die for a guitar and I get it. He's a musician. Maybe it had extreme sentimental value to him, but you can get another guitar. Like. Not victim blaming, not victim blaming, not victim blaming, but come on. Um, Furthermore, a number of survivors later stated, and I've heard about this. I fucking hate this. This makes me so angry. Uh, Survivors stated that the bouncer stopped people trying to escape via the stage exit, stating that the door was for the band only. Yep. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. I get that it's like a safety thing, but there's like a huge fucking fire. Let people out. Just let people out. <sighs> Rant over. Um, the fire from its inception was caught on videotape by cameraman Brian Butler for WPRI TV of Providence. And and the beginning of that tape was released, released to national news stations. I can't talk. Um, ironically, Butler was there for a planned piece on nightclub safety, being reported by Jeffrey Deirdrin, a WPRI news reporter who was also part owner of the station nightclub. Uh, WPRI-TV would later be cited for conflict of interest in having a reporter do a report concerning his own property. That's the least of their concerns about this story, though. Uh, The report had been inspired by the E2 nightclub stampede in Chicago that had claimed 21 lives only three days earlier. At the scene of the fire, Butler gave this account of the tragedy. Quote, It was that fast. As soon as the pyrotechnics stopped, the flame had started on the egg crate backing behind the stage, and it just went up to the ceiling. And people stood and watched it, and some people backed off. When I turned around, some people were already trying to leave, and others were just sitting there going, yeah, that's great. And I remember that statement because I was like, this is not great. It's time to leave. At first, there was no panic. Everybody just kind of turned. Most people still just stood there in the other rooms. The smoke hadn't gotten to them. The flame wasn't that bad. They didn't think anything of it. Well, I guess once we all started to turn towards the door and we got bottlenecked into the front door, people just kept pushing and eventually everyone popped out of the door, including myself. That's when I turned back. I went back. I went around back. There was no one coming out the back door anymore. I kicked out a side window and tried to get people out there. One guy did crawl out. I went back around the front again. And that's when you saw people stacked on top of each other trying to get out the front door. And by then, the black smoke was pouring out over their heads. Quote. Oh, my God. I know. Like, oh, my God. It's just like, it's one of those things where you don't, you don't think that it's possible. Like, you don't think something like that's going to happen to you. So your mind's just like, well, that's not what it is. It's like uh, back in the day before uh, mass shootings were so popular, um, you know, you'd hear people say, like, I heard a shot, but I thought it was fireworks. I thought it was construction or whatever. Like, I know you're sleepy. I'm sorry. I'm so tired. <laughs> Adam just looks so exhausted. We're almost done. We're very, very close. 
Um, in the days after the fire, there were considerable efforts to assign and avoid blame on the part of the band, the nightclub owners, the manufacturers and distributors of the foam material and pyrotechnics and the concert promoters. Um, through attorney, uh, attorneys, through attorneys, nightclub owners said they did not give permission to the band to use pyrotechnics. Band members claimed that they did have permission. So who knows? Um, a National Institute of Standards and Technology investigated the fire under the authority of the National Construction Safety Team Act using computer simulations with FDS and a mock-up of the stage area and dance floor concluded that a fire sprinkler system would have contained the fire long enough to, keep, to give everyone time to exit safely. However, because of the building's age, it was built in 1946, um, and its size, many believe the station to be exempt from sprinkler system requirements. Which, like, what the fuck? Well, I mean, they, got a, they had a lot in their hands in the 1940s. I know, but this was 2003, like... Well, I'm just saying they didn't time to make sprinklers in the 1940s. No, but you could have updated the building by 2003. Well, how could they when they have two jobs? That guy's a reporter and an owner. That's true. He's part owner. Thank you. Um, oh, here we go. In fact, the building had undergone an occupancy change when it was converted from a restaurant into a nightclub. This change dissolved its exemption from the law, a fact which West Warwick fire inspectors never noticed. Oh my God. So basically, they were required to have this, and they just didn't do it. Um, on the night in question, the station was legally required to have a sprinkler system, but did not. Um, outcry over the event has sparked calls for a National Fire Spring Sprinkler Incentive Act, but those efforts have so far stalled. On December 9th, 2003, brothers Jeffrey and Michael Deidrin um, the two owners of the station nightclub and Daniel Bichtel, so the, the manager guy, um, were they were each charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter, two per death, because they were um, indicted under two separate theories of the crime, criminal negligence manslaughter and misdemeanor manslaughter. The brothers pled not guilty to the charges Why? Bikedal pled guilty. The Deidrins also were fined $1.07 million for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance for their employees, four of whom died in the blaze. Which, again, like, they're just trying to do their jobs. They're just trying to work. Um, as of September 2008, at least... Uh, $115 million in settlement agreements has been paid off or offered to the victims or their families by uh, various defendants. I think I'm starting to get real sleepy too. My, my words are getting kind of sick. We're almost done, babe. Hang in there, people. Um, five months after the fire, Great White started a benefit tour saying a prayer at the beginning of each concert for the friends and family affected by the incident and giving a portion of the proceeds to the station family fund. In 2003, and again in 2005, the band stated they had not performed the song Desert Moon since the tragedy. Quote, 
I did not think, or I don't think I could ever sing that song again, unquote, said Russell. While guitarist Mark Kendall stated, quote, we haven't played that song. Think things that bring back memories of that night we try to stay away from. And that song reminds us of that night. We haven't played it since then and probably never will, unquote. But um, by August 18th, 2007, the band had resumed performing the song. So it's like five years later. Um, a permanent memorial at the site of the fire has been erected and named the Station Fire Memorial Park. In August 2016, the site was reported to have been use, used as a Pokestop in Pokemon Go. Oh, good. To an uproar of the victims' families. Which, like, could you imagine that? They put up a memorial to your family member that died horrifically, and then there's kids playing Pokemon. It, like, it, they just do landmarks. I mean, it's not... Pokemon I know, Go. but, like... They, every cemetery has, like, several Pokestops in it. Right. That's, that's weird to me. But they That's event- weird to me. Wayuka Cemetery in Lincoln eventually... Uh, got them to take them down because they were super pissed off. Well, yeah. Like, who thinks that that's a good idea? I don't know. But, um, there you go. There's some, there's some concert disasters for you. Well, yeah. Never go to a concert. Never, ever, ever go to a concert. Well, especially now. (laughs) COVID. I know. Do you think we'll ever do concerts again? After the vaccine, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Welcome to Night Vale got officially canceled, my, my live show. Oh, my God. I was supposed to go. So the week the week that everything closed down, we were supposed to go to a Comic-Con on that Friday. That Saturday, I was supposed to see Dear Evan Hansen, which is a musical I'm in love with. And then that Sunday was a uh, Welcome to Night Vale, a podcast live show. And all of that was canceled, not postponed canceled so wear your damn masks and stay home i want my life back yeah (laughs) all right so uh that's that um check out my instagram for a picture of detective weaver so and uh among other things um you can follow me on instagram at don't touch that it's haunted i am on uh the gmail at um don't touch that it's haunted at gmail.com. It's very late. My brain is not with me right now. Um, but yeah. So everybody have a nice week. Again, if you want to send me presents or memes, they're totally acceptable. Um, and uh, just remember, don't touch that. It's haunted.